You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. (laughs) You guys look great. It's good to be here. I'm really, uh, it's just always such a joy to be with you guys. Um, Yeah, I'm excited. Today is kind of the finish of this little Emmanuel series we've been doing, Um, but obviously um, it doesn't just finish everything that we're learning about Christ. And I hope in this season and and all the different Christmas traditions and everything that we get to do, um, it's so fun. It's fun to wear these sweaters. It's so fun to look at lights, so fun to do all the things. But I just really pray for our community that it really truly is bringing us closer to Christ that we are understanding on a deeper level just the love and the incredible magnitude of Emmanuel, of God being with us. It's, it's crazy when you think about it. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, today, we're actually making a little bit of a switch. Uh, so we are going to talk through wise men and Herod, but we've been following along in Luke's gospel um, as we've been looking at it. It has a lot of the details of the, the birth of Christ uh, in the story, and a, and a lot of what Luke is focused on is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. You know, Christ was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He's from the royal line of David. Uh, he was kind of a, there's a prophet to prepare the way in John, uh, heralded by angelic hosts, like some really cool stuff there. And if you continue in Luke, I would encourage you actually right away, there's, there's um, I kind of, I wanted to kind of uh, go into this today, but we had committed to Herod and the wise men, but the next story in the loose gospel is actually Jesus and Mary being presented at the temple, which is really fascinating. They run into the, the priest there of Simeon and, the, and this prophetess Anna or Anna, I don't know how you say it. So go, go and read that. It's really cool. In Luke 2, it's a cool read through. Um, but today we switched over to Matthew's gospel. It's a little bit of a different vibe, but it kind of continues the story, uh, the visit of the wise men. So Matthew, he's a little bit more concerned with the kingship of Jesus, right? And how he is fulfilling all these promises and prophecies from the Old Testament. And one of the most important aspects, oh man, I love that sound. So good. (laughs) Praises from the Lord, from the mouth of babes. So good. I love it. Sorry, tangent. Uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, like we said, is concerned with the kingship of Jesus. Uh, One of the most important aspects of this kingship heritage is where you came from, is your kingly line. So as you see in Matthew 1, it's just all genealogy. It's all just showing how Christ has this. He is born a king. He actually has this lineage. Um, And then it's chapter 2 that gets into the juicy details of what we will do today. So I want to pray, and then let's get into it today. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the story. Um, God, we know the story and kind of how it goes and the narratives that have been spun and we've seen the nativity scene and we know these things, but we just pray for for, um, open eyes today. We pray for a newness that we can see, a freshness, God, of your word again, a story that we know so well, but we can really dive into it. And I pray that our hearts be opened in a new way today. Um, that we would see your love and the magnitude of you being with us and how, how deep your love is for us. God, thank you. We give you this time. Pray your name. Amen. Thank you. All right, verse 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, so right away we get two characters. Okay, the first character is Herod the king. Okay, so we talked a little bit about this last week. So this is Herod the Great. So this is the father of the Herod who would preside over Jesus' crucifixion. So this is towards the end of his life. Historians uh, know that Herod the Great died about 4 AD or so. Um, so we're in kind of the, the end of his life. So a couple things about Herod, just to, to set us up well. He was not born a king. Okay, he was not born in this kingly lineage, which again is fascinating, right after Matthew just proved that Jesus was. Uh, this title, Herod the king, was given to him by Rome through his might, kind of political following, military conquests. Uh, Rome gave him an army to lead and kind of conquer the invading armies that were coming into Judea. Herod, he was an incredibly successful king, right, in, in worldly standards. He raised the prosperity of the land through city development, political standing. To some, he was a savior. Of course, to others, he was a tyrant. And Herod was central to the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. Of course, he also built himself a pretty fancy little home <laughs> and a palace. Um, <laughs> But we kind of get this character, right? So we get this Herod the king, okay? So that for the people that, again, this was written to, we always say the Bible is always written for us, but not necessarily to, you know, 21st century Americans. So we kind of have to get into the mindset of it. So there's this Herod character. People would know, okay, it's the time when Herod was there. But then the second group is the wise men. So we actually don't know a lot about these wise men. Uh, magi is a word that's probably closely related to what they were. It was this priest, that word comes from the priest caste system from Persia, actually. The Persian influence, uh, they were people that were supposed to be able to interpret dreams, perform magic, they studied astrology, kind of, and they studied other forms of mystical writings or books. Um, if you remember in the book of Daniel, when they were having the dinner party and the, the creepy hand writing on the wall, you guys remember that? Uh, what King um, Belshazzar was freaking out, and he, he says, he called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Those are the words for magi there. Um, much later, as the pendulum swings in Acts 8, you can look ahead, uh, there's a lesser version of this. There's a, this guy, Simon. He says, Simon the magician, which is awesome. Um, Simon the magician, um, and who wowed everyone with his acts or illusions. Um, and uh, that's like a much lesser version of it, right? Obviously, it's not as exotic. So what we're talking about here is magi from the East are specifically kind of more exotic. Uh, these are really probably wealthy, uh, more, more known in their area, very concerned with the supernatural and the spiritual um, so there's some things we can parse out from this Christmas narrative. So where are they from? They're from the East, okay? So you can please go home and research this. Don't let me just talk to you. Um, but later, uh, people have said they come from places like Persia, India, or Arabia. There's also a belief that these wise men may have come from Babylonia, which is actually really cool. I like that connection a lot. Um, nothing is, like, proven, um, but it's kind of fun because if you think about Babylonia, uh, Israel was in exile in Babylon for so long, so it's actually a cool connection to the potential influence that Israel had on Babylon. Um, it honestly doesn't really matter. Uh, I, I believe the point here is that they were from far away. They were from out there, not in Israel. This, was, this isn't their world. They're coming into Israelite world. Um, and then the three, you always hear of like we three kings, right? 
The three kind of came from the three gifts, assuming that each gift came from a specific wise man. Um, therefore, there must have been three. Uh, so there's some paintings, I think, I believe in Rome that say there's four, I think, and somewhere else there's eight. So it's kind of just wise men. What does that mean? Um, Eastern theology is a lot more polytheistic. Okay, so there's, they weren't afraid to have a God for every certain aspect of life. Um, astrology was big. So no wonder they said the king of the Jews, he has a star. So they would see this bright star that would mean something to them. They, to them, kingship was born and recognized by the heavens, not taken or won in battle. Um, so the implications of this star was that it was not for Herod, or even connected at all to a world power like Rome. This was the star specifically, or they say, of the one who was born king of the Jews. Um, what I think is probably the biggest distinction Matthew is trying to bring out by writing about these, these wise men is that we have non-Jewish, Gentile, wise men who know little of this Israelite Yahweh, this God, who has traveled so far to worship this supposed king versus the Jewish leaders who are right next door who are not taking it seriously. And that actually is really challenging to me. Okay, this is a bit of a tangent, uh, but I, I grew up in a Christian household. I, I was a pastor's kid, right? I had all the vests and buttons that Awanas could give you. Um, I knew the Sunday songs. My youth leaders didn't hate me more than the next kid. Um, and of course, I had lots of mess-ups and stuff. But in general, I, I tried to live a you know, good kid or whatever. Then I got the opportunity to attend Bible college in Portland at Multnomah. And I, I brought all that with me. And I ran into a very specific type of person, one that we sometimes would less than affectionately called the super-Christian. This was typically someone who did not grow up like me. They, they often grew up outside the church, did not grow up in the church, uh, with broken homes, potentially even taught, you know, God is just kind of spiteful old man in the sky. And the reason I called them, or we called them super-Christians, is because they had found Jesus, and now they were the most hyper people ever about Bible studies, about worship sessions, about what scriptures they had memorized, everything. And that should be encouraging, right? But more often than not, I was super annoyed. <laughs> I was super annoyed. Uh, why? Because I thought, because of the way I had grown up, because of that, I had matured beyond that kind of puppy stage love. You know, I had already done this, this deep, exciting work, and so I had this deep well of spiritual maturity. But even reading this, I thought, well, did I? You know, it could be said that I also, because of I was so used to it, that I had lost my awe of God. Right? I no longer approached Abba Father as a child, but instead as a co-worker. Right? I knew the handbook. I knew my job description. I was showing up to work to try to impress my boss, hoping for a raise of blessings. And the Magi here, they kind of remind me of super-Christians. Right, they probably didn't know more than the Israelites, right? They didn't grow up in this system, but they responded and they were stoked and they were hyper and they were in awe of what they didn't even know about. And of course, you're only responsible for what you know, but what you know should tell you your level of responsibility. Maybe these magi had heard, maybe they had read the sacred Hebrew scriptures telling of this Messiah King to be born, or they just saw a star and it meant something to them, but either way, they, they followed the star to see, right? It's pretty simple obedience. How much more worship should the ones who have shown 
and who have read and know the sacred scriptures and believe this was to happen, how much more should they have shown their awe? And this is what we're told in the story instead. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And if you remember from last week, that's a quote from Micah chapter 5. Uh, the biggest factor of this, Herod asking this question, remember he was troubled. The biggest question of this is, is there scriptural backing to challenge Herod for kingship here? In the Hebrew scriptures, is there a threat now to my kingdom and my power? So verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Why? Why would he care about the timing of that? Well, Herod is concerned of two things, right? Is this birth prophetic? And would there be a way to get rid of this king to keep his power? He doesn't go to God or his temple leaders for prayer or humility, but information so that he can continue scheming. The time of the star would have told him how old this king was and what sort of threat he would be. And this is kind of when the whole timing of the scene comes to the question. So you guys have seen nativity scenes before, and you always see the wise men at the manger in the nativity scene, right? Well, think about just the timing of it. Jesus was born, then there was a star, then the wise men saw the star, traveled from the east, they went to Herod, then they had to travel again to Bethlehem. So this would have taken some time, and a bit later. So we know, and we'll see this later, that it could have been months and months after Jesus' birth, even up to two years after Jesus' birth that this scene's happening. So verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Obviously, Herod has some malintent. Uh, much like these wise men are doing here, Herod should have sent a delegation, right, down to greet this king and to make peace. But instead, he's using these wise men as his spies so he can locate the newborn king. He can control the situation. So the wise men travel south to Bethlehem. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now remember, astrology was big in the Eastern belief system. The stars will guide their way. They might not be believers like you and I would maybe think, but they felt like they were guided by the heavenlies to where they needed to go. So what we have here is foreign wise men from a distant land believing because they have seen a star of a, a sign of a king of another nation, juxtaposing the people's ruler and chief priests of Israel who have surrendered to their God, accepted his law as their rule, and are not responding in worship, but jealousy and threat. This could not be a more backwards story of how it should be happening. Verse 11, the wise men, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Again, it's cra crazy to think about all this happening and trying to picture what it would have been like and felt like. And I, I, I understand this is rather editorial, but just it's hard not to think that the word 
of these exotic Eastern magi would not have spread, right? It's hard to think that throughout the town, be like, do you know who's at Herod's temple? Do you know who's there, who's coming, right? who's visiting? And then they're heading towards Bethlehem. You can also imagine the wise men as they got further and further away from Herod's palace and the temple and the grandness of Jerusalem, they may have been a little bit confused. Like, where is Siri taking us, right? They were getting closer and closer to this young king and yet farther and farther away from any of the splendor and earthly glory. And maybe that's exactly the point. Right, Jesus didn't need any of that splendor and glory because he is that in himself. The wise men presented great treasures. It doesn't seem to matter necessarily what they were, but it is interesting to note that over the years, scholars have dove into what would these things have meant. Um, so just to put them up there, um, gold often would mean, uh, would represent royalty. So recognizing this is from the royal line. Uh, frankincense uh, and myrrh were both kind of a sap, but frankincense was more representing divinity. So it was a sap that was burned as an incense offering. So it was kind of giving it back, worshiping to the heavens. But then myrrh is fascinating. It's actually a, a represent humanity because it was caused to actually uh, deaden the senses to help with like pain and suffering, which is really fascinating to kind of have that prophetically almost over Jesus. Um, they could not have known this was Jesus' future, but it's fascinating that that's how they presented it. The wise men's worship, uh, most likely, if you look into is most likely less of actually believing in God and more about kind of foreign dignitaries bestowing kingly gifts uh, to secure future good standing with this king. Okay, if you look into it, like they, we would have had more about the wise men if it was more about heart change and worship. But still, the gospel writer Matthew, he understands that even those who might not necessarily believe in God don't know the ways that they are still worshiping their creator. There's a deeper spiritual connection going on here than, than maybe even they know him. And, and honestly, their commitment to do all this is astonishing. The point, again, is to show Herod is, and we saw this map last week, Herod is six miles north of this spot. Six miles, okay? And how jealous he was compared to the show of respect that came from the east so many miles away. In verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And this is the last we hear of these wise men, right? What a striking story and humility. These guys just kind of like show up. They do this incredible thing, and then in some sort of humility and quietness, they just leave. Right? They had no reason to return to Herod. They had just announced and shown that they believed this baby was the true king of Israel. So as we've been doing with each character right here, we can ask, well, what did Emmanuel, what did God with us on earth mean to the wise men? For primarily Gentile leaders, this meant a supernatural sign that a true king of the land was born. Whether they knew the scriptures or not, they respected and saw Jesus as one who would reign and do great things. What's interesting is that the story of the wise men ends here when we elevate them and we show them in nativity scenes and sing about them in songs, but this is kind of as much as we know about them. But again, the story of Christ the King does not end right here. In fact, and this is my argument today, I believe the reason that we're seeing these wise men coming from the east, again, is to juxtapose the Israelite leaders who should be bowing at the foot of Jesus and how they actually saw it as a threat. 
So we see these wise men uh, respond to the birth, but then we get this insight of how the leader in Herod and his entourage respond to the birth. So verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This is like a whole different vibe, right? You usually don't have that in a nativity blow-up Christmas decoration, like a Herod like looming over the manger, right? You usually don't have that. But real quick, again, the Bible is always for us, but it's not always just to us. So for us, we have to take a step back. This would have meant something to them, right? Written this. So look, we have to look at the grand story of the Bible real quick so that we can come back to it. So do you guys remember Joseph, right? The whole rainbow coat debacle, and the brother's jealousy got him sold to Egypt, right? God used Joseph, though, in a mighty way to save Israel from drought, and he became a great influence in a foreign land. Okay, this is Genesis 37 for about 10 chapters. You can go read that. But then Exodus begins, and there's new leadership in Egypt. And instead of remembering Joseph, which is actually a theme of his life, the new leadership and new Pharaoh are threatened by Israel. And instead, they enslave the Israelite people. Okay, this is all ringing a bell, right? enslave them to their way of thinking, to their gods, to building their own kingdom. Okay, so now fast forward to Jesus' birth story. We have Herod the king, risen to power through might, bloodshed, and politics, a temple system that is being rebuilt but heavily influenced by Rome's way of thinking, Rome's gods, building their own kingdom. Okay, so the angel of the Lord tells Joseph and Mary to flee to a foreign land, because their own homeland has become hostile to them. Egypt at the time uh, would have had a very large Jewish pop- population, and although occupied by Rome, uh, Herod would have no jurisdiction there. So they obeyed the message, and they waited out Herod, verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. But... In the meantime, while they were waiting for that, before his death, as Herod, in his great palace scheming, hopped up on a heavy dose of paranoia and self-preservation, he gets this crazy idea when the wise men don't come back. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So the wise men had innocently mentioned that the star had appeared sometime in kind of the last two-ish years. So Herod's conclusion is that all children, all male children under two years and under could be a threat. Okay, now listen, I have three kids. That means I've had three two-year-olds in my house. They are a threat. They are very much... (laughs) They're very much a threat, but I don't think it's the same way of thinking here. And again, stepping back and looking at what this would have sparked if anyone had read this, man, how is this not Pharaoh in Egypt so long ago? This is exactly what that new Pharaoh did in Exodus. Let me read Exodus 2.22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That Pharaoh wasn't as nervous about the Messiah being born, but he just didn't want Israel to grow into this mighty nation anymore. It was the fear of this whole nation that threatened his rule. 
Herod's doing an incredibly similar thing, except instead of being scared of a nation, he's going way extreme because of one possible king baby. And when you sit there and think that the Pharaoh who drowned a bunch of kids and enslaved a nation might have been thinking slightly more rational than Herod here, like, you know it's bad, you know? But it's the same thread. Just like Pharaoh enslaved Israel, Herod has made Israel his captives for his own gain and has started killing his own people to ensure his future. That's the definition of a tyrant, right? It's made even worse when you realize this is right after a census had gone out by Rome for everyone to come back to Judea, to their hometowns. This is a horrific scene of the corrupt, power-hungry kingdom of darkness. But baby Jesus, born the king, was a threat to power everywhere, right? Yes, on earth, and you better believe the spiritual powers and influences of darkness that obviously had a great hold on Herod and the leaders there. Jesus' birth was a reckoning, a bright light to expose the darkness, and it was quite dark. But again, God's sovereignty is mind-blowing here. Years and years and years before, there was a prophecy from Jeremiah to the Israelite people going into exile. And the prophecy was that God was going to restore his people and rebuild, but there was still the reality and the harshness of the time. And at the time, God's children were being sent into exile, some to their death in Babylon, and it was likened to Rachel, who desperately wanted children, but was barren and wept for them. Jeremiah is comparing this to that, and this is why we read in Matthew 2, 17, Then was fulfilled what had spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. And for Matthew, he's not just trying to take his readers back to the exile. He's saying, hey, that actually is also true with this right here. He's using the same prophecy to say this is happening here. What is happening now with Herod's wickedness is much like the wickedness of Babylon that ransacked Israel, except Herod is supposed to represent Israel. Everything is backwards. Egypt, Babylon, the East, all should bring up power, worldly wealth, and values, even the exile period of God's people. And yet these are all the good guys in the story. Herod, leader of Judea, supposed the king of the Jews has become the new Pharaoh-esque leader of this uh, Babylon-esque kingdom. And to finish the story, verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, being Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. So when Herod dies, this is kind of nerdy history, but when Herod died, he divided the land into sections and appointed each section to one of his sons, Archelaus, got Judea, and Samaria. And I thought it was an interesting point here. The wise men were said to be dream interpreters, but now this is, if you look in the story, this was the fourth dream that Joseph has had right? His wife would be pregnant. He was to go to Egypt. He was returned to Judea, and he was to settle 
in Nazareth, right? The cool thing, I think there's a little nod here that like, yes, there's wise men who have studied this stuff, but God is the wisest of them all. And God reached out to Joseph, official wise men or not. Now another Joseph is listening to his dreams and obeying the word from the Lord. So we have to ask, what did Emmanuel mean to Herod? To this character representing power, prestige, self-seeking gain, and selfish pride, Emmanuel was a threat, right? Jesus was a threat to Herod's kingdom that he's built around himself. But what he doesn't realize is that it wasn't his kingdom to rule. It was God's nation that he was holding ransom for his own gain. And as we've seen throughout Scripture, God will always overthrow those who try to take his throne. Exactly. Jesus has always been in the business of overthrowing the darkness. He is the light of the world, so it's natural that the darkness is not only seen, but it's actually cast out. And Matthew's brilliant comparison motifs would have made the ones who should have seen Jesus and worshipped God indifferent and even violent, while the ones who should have been indifferent bow down and pay respects and reverence and awe. Like the pendulum swing for Herod, all the way from, from threat and violence, swing all the way over there to the wise men from the east who are just following whatever spiritual lead they have, trusting all paths, kind of the spiritual realm. But what was the middle of both of these extremes? And it was a baby in a manger, right? It was a little boy growing up with parents who were trying to faithfully obey God and follow the way that he has for them, right? In the middle was the Son of God, the image of the invisible God. In the middle was God with his people, Emmanuel. And if Herod kind of, Herod's rule represents the Pharaoh and this kind of Egypt-esque empire, then Jesus represents this new Israel, this new people, an Israel that will truly be the redemption for God's people once and for all. And this is why the gospel can be for all people. It's not about being born in a certain lineage, but it's about belief in Jesus because he has begun a new line for those who believe and are saved. The Christmas story is, is, is about fulfilling the Old Testament coming of the Christ, but it's also just the beginning for the Christ to redeem his people. And as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Emmanuel has meant different things to different people, right? All this was meant to spark in us the very real idea that God is with us. Does anything change in your life knowing that the God of the universe by the powerful, redemptive love of Christ through the alive and active Holy Spirit is with you always. Like God with us should spark awe in us. In what ways are we coming in awe to God, like a child to their father? Have we lost our awe of God? Have we just resigned the responsibility to the super-Christians of the day? And because our nature is to think of self, we have to ask, where does Jesus as Lord threaten my own little kingdom that I have built around myself? How does God with us affect what we are worried about? Our anxieties, our insecurities, our joys. How does it affect our parenting, work, our marriage, our thought life, our neighbors, our city, everything? right? Emmanuel didn't just happen to fulfill some old prophecies to give us a fully rounded religion. Emmanuel happened so that he would be our God, 
and we would be his people. This has always been God's goal. Emmanuel happened so that we would turn from our own understanding and seek his ways like a lamp unto our feet. Emmanuel happened so that we would not only be saved from sin, but saved to a new life. And this new life is one of worship and commitment back to him. He gave us life so we should live for him. That's why it's always so encouraging to come together like this and celebrate what God has given us and is doing through his community. I'm very aware of what today is, and this is not a giving message, (laughs) right? This is not a giving message, but today is about responding to that, to Jesus as king in a fun, generous way to bless our local community and our communities that are far from us. Emmanuel happens so that we can turn from building our own kingdoms of security here on earth and participate with the kingdom of God that is here and still being fulfilled. And this participation in the kingdom of God happens first in our hearts, in our bodies, in our relationships, in our finances. It's holistic. It should be every aspect of our life. And this happens individually, this happens as families, this happens as the family of God, the church here in Albany. And so in our response today, don't forget, Jesus is King. Jesus is the Savior. All the things we've learned the last few weeks, but so much more, because He is the good news that was born to us, too, that Christmas morning, and the good news that is alive and reigning today. Amen? Let's give him the glory when we pray and then we'll move towards response today.